Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We are absolutely delighted to welcome Susan Stroman. Susan, we have met you on other occasions on the Tony Awards. You've been up there on that podium five times, <laughs> twice for the producers, once for Best Direction of a Musical, once for Best Choreography. That was in 2001. 1995, I'm sorry, I skipped 2000. 2000, Best Choreography for Contact. 1995, Best Choreography for Showboat. 1992, Tony Award, Best Choreography for Crazy for You. And to think, this all started when you were only five years of old, out of age in, <laughs> in, in, in Delaware. That's right. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> but yes, I started dancing when I was about five years old, and took dancing and piano and guitar and and pretty much was immersed in music my whole life. And you were a performer first before you became a choreographer. Well, yes. I have to say, though, I I always wanted to be on the other side of the table, on the creative side. So even at a young age, I was choreographing in my living room as my father played the piano. He was the real music man of my life. Who were you you choreographing for yourself? Oh, yes, for myself. I I didn't know you rounded the (laughs) family up. I couldn't get a job at five, but... (laughs) Yes, yeah, so part of uh, uh, just growing up was also creating dances. And your your choreography is very imaginative, I guess is the best word for it, very different than other people might have, might do in the same situation. Were you always like that, even at five years of age? Did your parents say, oh, Susan, that's crazy, do something <laughs> different? You know. Well, you know, I think it's because um, even at an early age, I would visualize music, so whether... It was um, classical or an old standard or, or even rock and roll. I would imagine hordes of people dancing through my head. So in your, in your vision, your dreams, you would see people actually performing it. You would imagine that? Yes, and I, and I have to say that it still holds true today if I hear music. I, I do imagine it visually. So I think I had no choice but to become a choreographer. Do you imagine specific people? <laughs> in other words, when you're doing The Frogs, which is your current uh, show at Lincoln Center, did you imagine Nathan Lane or did you imagine just a person and then well no when i was doing the frogs i only imagined nathan lane (laughs) well in the case of frogs um that was a show that actually nathan brought to you yes absolutely he told me he had an idea and uh i said what is that and he said the frogs and i knew in in sort of my theater subconscious that it it existed and that it was greek and that's all i really knew about it Uh, so nathan brought me the materials he brought me uh the original aristophanes play and then he brought me the play that was done by uh, bert shevloff and sondheim at Yale. And uh, I was intrigued by it because uh, it it seems so pertinent. Uh, it uh, was written in 405 BC, but in fact, it was what it was saying really applied to our times today. Uh, Aristophanes was a real satirist of his time and, and political satirist and also was the inventor of old comedy or even burlesque. So within this show, this this comedy, that he also talked about the times. And, and in fact, that was the way the people found out about what was happening uh, politically. And at that time, the leaders were unable to speak to the people. And um, yes? Well, what I wanted to say is to set up for our, for our listeners who may not have had a chance to get in to see the show yet, um, a little of the history of the frogs. You, you touched on it briefly. There is the Aristophanes, but then Bert Shevlov, who the listeners would know perhaps best for a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Yes. Um, did it as an undergraduate at Yale? Yes. And then 30 years later, it was done at Yale Rep uh, 
in the Payne Whitney Gymnasium for three performances. <laughs> yes, and Sondheim wrote uh, uh, some of the music for it. it. wrote, I believe, about five songs for it. Can you, just for our listeners who may not have been able to get to New York from wherever they live around the country, kind of go through what the, what the play is? In other words, this play is more than 2,400 years old, <laughs> yes. yet it is very timely even today. Yes. What is the basic storyline of the frogs? Well, uh, Dionysus, who is the god of drama and the god of wine, travels down to Hades in order to bring back um, a poet or a writer or someone to speak to the people. In the time of Aristophanes, he went down to Hades to bring back either uh, uh, Euripides or Aeschylus. And in the Bert Shevelov version, Dionysus travels down to Hades and has to choose between Shaw and Shakespeare. So it is almost like a a road movie, a Bob Hope and Bing Mm -hmm. Crosby movie, where Dionysus and his slave Xanthius in our production played by Roger Bart and uh, And Nathan Lane, of course, course, is Dionysus. They they travel down to Hades, and uh, on their beginning of their journey, they decide to bring back Shaw. But when they get there, uh, there's a contest between Shaw and Shakespeare. And how how much has the book been rewritten to bring it up to date? I know Nathan did most of the rewrite himself, I guess, didn't he? Yes, Nathan Lane uh, co-wrote the book there, and he he adapted the book from what Shevloff had written and what is is truly based on Aristophanes. The form is very Aristophanes, and of course the comedy is based on Aristophanes. Now, you you begin and end the play with a traditional Greek chorus. Yes. In between, it's very different than the traditional Greek chorus. (laughs) (laughs) Very different. Well, but we have parabasis in the middle, you know, and uh, there are very many... Okay, explain that. <laughs> I'll say for our listeners, but I'm not even... Well, clear. that is where the chorus turns to the audience and explains to them what's going on. And, and in our version, actually, Sondheim has written a wonderful song where uh, they turn to the audience and say, don't worry, this is only a play. Don't don't uh, get all upset because Dionysus is getting upset because there's a war going on that he doesn't feel that should be going on and that there's no leaders to speak to the people. They're unable to put the simplest words together to speak to the people. So that's why he goes down to Hades. And uh, the, the chorus turns to the audience and, and uh, tells them not to get upset. For a play that was timely several thousand years ago <laughs> and that in its original production was following in the wake of the Vietnam conflict, mm-hmm. why do you think, especially for a show that had Stephen Sondheim involved, why didn't we see the frogs for 30 years? Why did it really wait for Nathan Lane to, to have the idea? Is there Was there something in the structure of the piece earlier on or do you think it's the thematic issues? It's well, just remarkable that we, we hadn't seen that show. Yes. Well, I think, um, well, when they did it at Yale, it was a very short piece. It was, on, I think, only about 45 minutes. And I think one would, in order to bring it to New York, would have had to uh, go back at it and look at it for a, a longer evening. And so when Nathan came up with the idea, I said, well, if Sondheim's willing to roll up his sleeves and, and write new songs, and in fact he did, he wrote six new songs for this piece. And he was very excited about being part of it, and I think excited about collaborating with Nathan. And, uh, they, you know, they both are, are love the theater. They are theater animals, and 
they both are very political, so the frogs seemed perfect for both of them to collaborate on. Well, just to back up a, a couple of years, uh, you and Nathan, Nathan Lane, of course, had worked together on The Producers, yes. in which he starred. Yes. Uh, did he then come to you and say, I've got this great idea for a show, let's do The Frogs, and then you both approached Sondheim? Is that kind of how it worked? Absolutely, yes. He called me to see if I would be interested in something like this. And, and when I read it, I was most interested because I felt it was very pertinent to what was happening politically today, and that it seemed to be the, the right time to do The Frogs. And um, we went to, knocked on Sondheim's door, thought, what, what did we have to lose? He could mm-hmm. either say, no, I'm not interested, or yes, I am. And we had a lunch with Steve, and, and at the end of it, he says, I'm very interested. All of his shows, are, or, or his whole life, he's tried to make a point in his shows about art can make a difference, and that's really important to Sondheim. And uh, so that is what Frogs is about. And it's very contemporary. Before the Greek chorus appears on stage, as I recall, you see Nathan Lane and Roger Bart come out as Dionysus and his slave, and they basically do some shtick, some comedy shtick, and say, turn off your cell phone, that sort of thing. (laughs) So it's very, very current. Yes, well, Sondheim wrote a song called uh, Invocation to the Audience, and within that opening, uh, Dionysus and Xanthius turn to the audience, and they give them instructions. Mm -hmm. What's wonderful uh, about what Sondheim has done is that he bookends the show then again giving instructions to the audience at the end. This time it's not about cell phones. It's about not being complacent. Mm -hmm. It's about making a difference. It's about going out to vote. It's about not being static. And uh, so he really does a beautiful job in bookending the show in speaking to the audience. Now, there are a number of references in it that are contemporary. Uh, The name George Bush is mentioned more than once. The Republicans (laughs) were in town for a convention back in the end of August. Uh, What kind of reaction did you get from them? Well, (laughs) if any. Yes, I don't think it's a show for the Republicans. It wasn't on the preferred list. No, no, it wasn't. No, because, of course, we have a, a, a joke in there about the big bully Bush frog. And uh, who makes uh, preemptive strikes and then forgets why he attacked in the first place? <laughs> but uh, so there, and there, and there are a couple couple references about um, people being able to put words together and speak, and uh, how important language is. The show is about the importance of language and how communication is very important for people. And uh, so, yes, when the Republicans were in town, uh, there there um, were a few hisses. And, of course, Nathan <laughs> reacted by saying, I think there are some snakes in the audience. <laughs> Very good. How much – I mean, the night I saw it, Nathan ad-libbed uh, one wonderful ad-lib. It was very apropos. Um, how much – as the author – to have the author on stage – I guess he can do what he wants, but is there a lot of that? Has there been a lot of that? You're not there every night. Uh, well, Maybe you don't know. No, no, but I'm in contact with all of them every night. And uh, the, the thing is, the show uh, allows that, and Aristophanes did that also. I mean, Aristophanes really wrote he was Dionysus, and Dionysus could turn to the audience and speak to them about what happened that day politically about the Peloponnesian War. So the structure of the piece is such that it's meant to be uh, to turn to the audience and break the fourth wall because it is satire. And Nathan is a master at satire. Now, both directing and choreographing this show, you have some very inventive um, stage <laughs> business or stage actions, including one fellow who comes down out of the ceiling in a boat. <laughs> you know, yes. Uh, including frogs that literally jump all over the place, some very acrobatic and athletic dancers. Mm-hmm. What do you look for when you're casting a show like this, certainly in the dancers and the actors? Well, you know, it's different with every show. I, I you know, for example, in, in Oklahoma, I needed um, sort of corn fed. Uh, pioneer types and in uh, 
contact, I needed very sexual and sensual dancers. And the frogs, I needed people who uh, could dance aggressively and athletically and able to 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 be a frog and pull Nathan Lane out of a boat and toss Nathan Lane around. So they had to be quite strong. And uh, the frogs in the frogs represent small-minded people or people who want you... About people who don't want anything to change. They don't want the rules to change. They don't want any laws to change. So when Dionysus goes down to Hades, he has to pass through the river Styx. In doing so, he passes through a group of frogs. The frogs try to stop Dionysus from getting into Hades. And uh, they not only try to stop him, they try to turn him into a frog. So within that number choreographically, we, we, we toss Nathan around, pull him out of the boat, and then, in fact, try to turn him into a frog and get him to leap like a frog. And at one point, he's kind of like in a kick line, and that was kind of a <laughs> scream to see him doing that. He did it quite well. Yes. I was surprised. Well, Nathan's fearless. You know, he's uh, one of the most fearless actors I've ever worked with. And, and, and selfishly, for a director, that is what you want all the time. You want actors who are fearless so you can take chances and actors who are not afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. I need to read a quote of yours back to you. This is from uh, Lincoln Center, the Link- Lincoln Center Theater Review, their, uh, their very elegant uh, newsletter. Um, it's like I am a painter of pictures, but my pictures move, and to what extreme they move is dependent on the paint, and that is indeed the actor. I don't think I've ever heard a director, choreographer speak with that brevity and eloquence and it speaks to what you were just saying about finding the right people. Yes. For for example, there's a myth in uh, in Greek mythology about the three graces and the three graces would descend upon these Dionysian parties and uh, and in fact they were like party girls and we see see images of the three graces in in art everywhere and uh, I have three beautiful dancers who I've worked with several times and I said to them I could just have you descend onto the stage. You could just, I could lower you in on a wire or you could walk down some stairs. I said, but would you be interested in learning how to slide down on silk or, or lower yourself down on silk? It would mean a great deal of training and a great deal of strength. And the girls were quite up for it. And uh, so for an hour, for seven weeks every day, these girls learned how to climb these silks and it's quite beautiful and, and and goes with the whole Greek idea of the you know diaphanous gowns and the silk and the costumes so when we go to the the um, uh, the Dionysus ritual right outside in the myrtle grove outside of Hades the girls lower the three graces lower themselves down on silk and they and they learn this and at all times I said if you don't want to do this we will stop you just tell me and we won't do it. But they got obsessed with it, uh, almost like athletes. I think we should explain for the audience what the audience in the theater sees is these big bolts of silk coming down from up above, maybe 20, 30 feet up above uh, the stage, up where the lights are. The silk comes down, these girls come down on the silk, and quite acrobatically, with no safety net and no safety lines attached to them, they perform as acrobats, basically. Yes, is, is it's, that, is it's, that basically? yes it's quite beautiful. I mean, they they're, they always remain sort of goddess-like, so it mm-hmm. never becomes circus-like. It's always beautiful. Right. And, and their strength is actually now... Uh, 
uh, unmatched, I think, on Broadway because they can now go up the silk 40 feet from the from the ground. 40 feet? Yeah, is, they're wow. stronger than any fireman in New York City. <laughs> now, when you were thinking of this, did you say, oh, my God, I'll never find anybody who can do this? Or is this something that you basically challenge yourself to develop this and then challenge the dancers to do it? Is that- yes, I think that's, I mean, I, I if, if the show calls for it, it seemed appropriate because it was about the myth and, and it was about beauty. So it all seemed appropriate. Again, I, I do this in many of the shows, ask the actors if they would like to learn this. For example, at the end of The Music Man, the entire company played the trombone. Mm-hmm. And that was something where we, we learned how to tr- play the trombone every day for an hour. And, of course, after the- Because clearly you couldn't cast actors who yes. already knew the trombone. And they seemed to be up for it. After two weeks, I thought, oh, this is never going to work. It sounded <laughs> like moose in the other room. And then that third week, it was almost like The Music Man story itself. I was so proud of them and and in fact at the end when they came out and played the trombone it was not only the townsfolk it was the pride of these actors so it's always every once in a while a show will allow uh an actor to stretch their, themselves and in fact in the frogs every actor in, in that show is on their creative edge do you give them a lot of freedom to interpret as they wish absolutely yeah i think I, I do when I, I do a show. It all it is all thought through and all mapped out and all choreographed when I go mm-hmm. in. But that's not necessarily shared with the actor. I let them do what they would like and and feed off of them. It's just that I've created a cradle for them to fall back into. So with a show like The Frogs, when you're looking for, I'm going to say people to be in the cast without putting any any uh, connotation on it, do you look for actors who can dance, dancers who can act? Uh, I mean, how, how do you how do you search for these people? Well, it's, it is again different with every show, but for dancers, uh, I do need dancers who can act pretty much all the time. And a, a lot of times I'll do for the audition, give a combination, but then within that combination, I'll toss out different uh, emotions, like say, let me see you do that combination aggressively. Let me see you do the same combination flirtatiously. Or let me see you do it as if you've had um, six margaritas. <laughs> so, you know, they're able to do the same choreography with different characters. And that, allow- that shows me that they themselves have uh, a great deal of confidence in their own various uh, emotions and sides. I would like to give our radio audience an example of your work on the radio. They can ha- they'll have to visualize this. Yes. Would you like to pick a song from the Frogs? Now, the, the cast album of the current cast has not been recorded yet, but we do have the earlier recording made some years ago of yes. the Frogs. Yes. Would you like to pick a number and explain what the number is and how uh, it works? Yes, sure. Well, why don't we pick the very first number, which is Invocation to the Audience, and, and you'll hear Nathan Lane uh, talking to the audience about giving them instructions about what to do and how to act in the theater. And again, as I said, what's wonderful about this now in, in this version of the Frogs that we currently have, Sondheim has bookended the show with the same idea. And as he's giving the instructions, what are we seeing on stage? Uh, what, what we're seeing is uh, Dionysus and his slave Xanthia. So uh, we're seeing Nathan Lane and Roger Bart talk to the audience and actually letting the audience know what they are in for, as Aristophanes did in the original Frogs. That's from a version of The Frogs done several years ago, primarily Nathan Lane on that number, and that's the invocation to the audience. Susan Stroman, our guest today, was that the first time that Nathan was exposed to The Frogs? Is that how he became interested in in reviving it? Yes, they did a concert to celebrate Sondheim's birthday, Uh and uh, Nathan was asked to come down to sing uh, the the lead uh, on The Frogs, and, and I think that's what tweaked his interest. And from then, he... 
he uh, it just the interest kept growing as he did research on it. Was that prior to the producers? Or uh, about the same time? About the same time. Yeah. It all happened at the same time. But he waited to uh, bring it up to me until after he had left the producers. Uh, so he wasn't during rehearsal with the producers saying, hey, I've got a great idea for you for the next show. <laughs> no, no. <Okay. laughs> with that track, uh, you, you had a unique opportunity that, to go back to Stephen Sondheim and say, work on a show. In fact, Invocation of the Audience is something that he has altered a couple of times because it was also in putting it together. Yes, which was a review of his music, yes. But he... he altered some of the earlier references. Yes. What's it like to be able to go to Stephen Sondheim and say, would you think about doing this with some of your material? <laughs> well, I think what, what was most exciting is to say to Sondheim, would you be willing to write new songs? And so the idea that doing this project not only made people aware of the frogs, but but we also were given six new Sondheim songs. And they're wonderful. A new song for Pluto, and who is... Um, played by uh, Peter Bartlett, and a new song for Karen the Boatman, who was played by the wonderful John Biner, wonderful comedian. Well, I have to ask you. Now, John Biner is not <laughs> someone that most people think of immediately for casting their next Broadway show. I love John Biner from all of his television appearances over the years. Where, whose idea was John Biner? Where did you come up with John Biner for this? Because <laughs> it's, br- it's a brilliant stroke. That was Nathan Lane's idea. Really? really? Yes. Well, the thing is, the uh, the principals in the Frogs have to be uh, comics, and the one thing about Karen, he's the old boatman on the River Styx. He is the one that takes Dionysus and Xanthius down to Hades. So there's a lot of conversations to be had on the boat as this as this uh, trip happens. So Nathan wanted uh, someone that he would have strong banter with comically. And uh, because in Aristophanes' time, too, all the lead principles were comics of, of, or, or were thought of as uh, knew how the form of old comedy was played. And, and so Nathan Lane, just like Aristophanes, wanted a real comic. Hmm. It's a masterstroke. I mean, it was, well, he's it was, having a wonderful time, too, because he's never done anything like this. So I think he loves, you know, he loves the feedback from the audience. And and I have to say that the comics like Nathan Lane and, and Roger Bart and, and John Biner and Peter Bartlett, they they have a unique sense uh, uh, with the audience. They they do what we refer to in comedy as surf an audience. They know when to go forward. They know when to stop. They know when the laugh's going to peak. And John Biner, of course, has that gift, and that gift can't be taught. There was one other thing that I heard discussed is people who knew the frogs as it was coming forward. There was one question, which was whether it would be appropriate to have changed the dueling authors that well, were Shaw and Shakespeare pertinent when Shevlov certainly did it in the 40s and maybe in the 70s, but were there... Was there at least would one of those to have traded out? Was that ever discussed that it might be other other people? Sure, it was. It was in, actually laid on the table at one of our meetings. But in fact, it ultimately seemed best that it was Sean Shakespeare. It's well known that uh, Shaw. Uh, wasn't a lover of Shakespeare. No matter what Shaw would write or how prolific he would become to everyone, he knew that everyone would ultimately love Shakespeare more. So no matter what he wrote, people will always love Shakespeare. And that made Shaw crazy. So it seemed perfect. that course, Shaw would write essays about it. And uh, so it seemed perfect that... uh, 
for, for Shaw to be in Hades to run into Shakespeare and that they would have this argument. You know, there's a lot of uh, S words involved with this show. Shaw, Shakespeare, Susan Stroman. <laughs> Stephen uh, Sondheim. Bert, Stephen Sondheim, Bert <laughs> Shave Love. Yes. Um, do you have to have an S initial to work on this show? No, <laughs> no <laughs> it seems, seems so. so. Well, Nathan, Nathan, Nathan wrote it. Yeah, he yeah. is. <laughs> well, what was but, it like working with Sondheim? He's famous, of course, for doing things at the last minute and writing new songs to plug into the show. Was a lot of this last minute or these six songs he wrote they planned all along? Uh, no, there were some last minute moments and, and absolutely last minute lyrics. He tweaks the lyrics to the bitter end. And in fact, we after we opened, uh, he right on opening day, he sent me some new lyrics and I said, OK, we have to wait. <laughs> so we have to wait on this. And uh, so I put I put them in about a week later when everybody was calm. So, so what, yeah, they, he, he does tweak to the bitter end. He so never give us stops. a little, little behind the scenes of working with Stephen Sondheim. What, what is it like collaborating with him? Oh, he's a wonderful collaborator. And I and I and again, he's um, he's very passionate about the theater. So to be between him and Nathan Lane, who both uh, just adore the theater and are are just devoted to it, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was electric, really. But he's very collaborative and, and uh, works very hard and, and, and is very, um, very, very gracious about getting ideas from you and, and uh, feeding him ideas, you know, and, and uh, you tell him about the set and the costumes. And, you know, I told him at the end of the new Pluto number, the girls' hats were going to catch on fire. And <laughs> he loved that and, and, and wrote to that. You know, so he's, he's very collaborative. Now, the Frogs has been playing at Lincoln Center here in New York. Any plans to take it anywhere else in the world? Well, I think possibly. I know that uh, we, are, we have a limited run and we run until October 10th and we, we record our album on the 12th. But then um, both Nathan and I have to uh, go off and do the movie of the producers. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I'm, I'm sure the Frogs will have a future, but it'll have to be on hold for a while. <laughs> I want to talk, we want to talk more about the producers, but before we get to that, you were working elsewhere in the Lincoln Center complex immediately prior to the Frogs, having done your first full-length ballet. Oh, yes. And, mm-hmm. and the first new commissioned full-length ballet in something like 40 years at at the City Ballet? Yes. What was that experience (laughs) like where you were working totally, I mean, I guess it would be most akin to your experience on Contact, where you got to completely create the piece uh, yourself based on the music. Well, it, first of all, it was an honor to be asked. I, I, I had done um, a small piece for New York City Ballet uh, for a celebration, their 50th celebration, but um, when Peter Martins called me to say he would like me to do a full-length ballet, I, I was overwhelmed. Um, and I said, well, let me have a think, and if I could come up with an idea, I will get back to you. And of course, I thought I have to come up with an idea. What an extraordinary opportunity this would be! And uh, but it really was a case of we want you to do something. Something, yes, <laughs> yes, and no, you know. So, and I could pick or choose any idea or music that I, I wished. And um, so, you know, I think because of uh, it was all happening. All this was happening a little bit after September 11th. That sort of sort of American genes were coming out of me, and I thought, well, let me use some American music. And I thought I had al- already been lucky enough to choreograph to Gershwin because of Crazy Few and but I thought um, wouldn't it be great to get uh, Irving Berlin and use uh, the music of Irving Berlin and uh, and then all, another composer American composer that I love is Walter Donaldson so um, 
I couldn't decide between the two, so I thought, let me do both. So I had a first act that was a melodrama and a second act that was a comedy, and it was called Double Feature. It's coming back. Actually, they're bringing it back in February and in the spring. But it's an homage to silent film. And it came from reading a, a quote from Balanchine that said, um, we, we are dancers. We are a silent minority. And I thought, you know, I just the word silent stood out to me. And I thought silent film, which I love, silent film. I love Chaplin and I love Keaton. And uh, I thought, what if I uh, did a silent film in ballet? So I went to the designers, Robin Wagner and William Ivy Long, and we created an evening, um, a real homage to silent film. And it's interesting because it provoked, that piece provoked the kind of discussion about is this theater, is this musical theater, or is this ballet, in the same way that sometimes we hear about certain pieces of Sondheim's to reference them again, is this musical theater or is this opera? Yes. For you... What it, was it working in a ballet idiom? Was it the fact that you were working with ballet dancers but were taking it into a theatrical? Do you make those divisions in your own mind? Well, I love crossing the mediums. I love taking uh, when, when, when the different um, uh, themes cross. I love that. And, and the double feature is all classical ballet. It's all classical. It's all on point. But it uses an entire company of 60 dancers. And um, it's... Uh, but because they get to play characters, of course, it is um, more theatrical than I think they are used to. And, and the characters are real people as opposed to fairies or swans or ducks. They are actual people who have emotions. And I think the dancers uh, loved having the opportunity to dance in these real characters as much as I loved having the opportunity to use this incredible technique. I mean, their technique is really unmatched and and... To be able to ask them to do a step where I imagine them coming down on the count of three and they didn't come down until the count of nine <laughs> you know, was uh, thrilling for me. So it, it, uh, I think we both uh, came out of that experience um, more excited and, and wiser just about our own art. One show that uh, you were very much involved with was Contact. You kind of created that show, and it's basically, it was dance. It was controversial uh, in, in many ways because of the choreography and just the whole show itself. How did that come about, and what challenges did that present for you? You did get nominated uh, for a Tony. In fact, no, you got the Tony as uh, Best Choreographer that year for Contact. How did that all come about? Well, Contact came about actually from, um, I, I had done a Broadway show, which didn't last too long, called Steel Pier mm-hmm. by Kander Neb and... Um, Andre Bishop, the artistic director of Lincoln Center, saw it, and he, he loved the show, and he, he gave me a call, and he said, if you have an idea, I will help you develop it. And, of course, for a director or choreographer to hear that is mm-hmm. like music to one's ears, because usually somebody's thrown an old script of, you know, an old revival on your desk saying, well, you do this, but no one ever says, if you have an idea, I will help you develop it. And that's what's so wonderful about working at Lincoln Center. It's it's all about nurturing the actor and the mm-hmm. artists and the writers, and, and that is unique in New York City. So uh, I said to him, yes, I do have an idea. My head swims with different mm-hmm. ideas, and my head swims with short stories. I think if you are a director and choreographer, you are an observer of life. So I do imagine what couples are doing in a restaurant, or I do imagine what someone is doing who I watch walking down the street or what their life might be like. And I was in a, a bar down in 
the meat market district uh-huh. in New York City and and saw a girl in a yellow dress walk into a club uh, where she was surrounded by New Yorkers dressed in black. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this girl is going to change someone's life tonight. And it was an image that uh, sort of burned in my mind. And so when Andre said, do you have an idea? I said, yes, I do. And I called my good friend, John Weidman. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about what this story might be. And uh, uh, Andre Bishop and Bernie Gersten allowed me a, a workshop with some dancers. And what was they just let me down in there in the basement of Lincoln Center in their wonderful rehearsal studios and, and didn't see me for about five weeks and then came down to see what I was doing. And I think they were they were very, very excited and, and said, yes, we will produce this. And that was the famous scene from the show with the girl in the yellow dress. That was yes. one of the three different storylines. Yes, this, the, uh, this, the whole theme of the show was about contact and it had within it three short stories. The first one about uh, took place with a girl on a swing and two gentlemen and, and within this short story. They had no trouble making contact whatsoever. The second short story was about a a wife in an abusive relationship. There she had someone in her life but couldn't make contact with him. And the only way to survive that was to daydream and dance her way out of it. The third short story was about a man who, if he didn't make contact, would die. So, you know, for all of us who live in New York City or any teeming metropolis, uh, we are surrounded by people but have difficulty making contact with them. And I, I wanted to create a show that was accessible to New Yorkers. Now, here's a show that you created. You had carte blanche to do what you wish. The Music Man was an existing show. Yes. Which was probably on Broadway before you were born. <laughs> uh, certainly a movie version, certainly other other versions of it. How do you come to a work that already exists? Even the producers was a, a, a movie. Uh, how do you come to an existing work and make it your own? Well, in fact, uh, any existing work, you need to treat it like a new piece. Even something like Oklahoma, what I, which I, I did with Trevor Nunn, it was, it was treated as a new piece when we did it at the Royal National Theatre in London. But uh, uh, I do because I, I part of when I choreograph, I arrange the music for the choreography to match the choreography. For some of these uh, uh, musicals that where the music does exist, I need... I need permission from the estate or the relatives to be able to develop that music for the dance. And I've been lucky enough to, to get that from, from the uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein estate and, and, uh, and the Gershwin estate. And of course, in the case of Oklahoma, there was the famous Agnes DeMille ballet, which yes. you got permission to record. You have to do it your own way. How did that happen? And well, I, when uh, Trevor Nunn asked me to come to London to do Oklahoma at the Royal National Theater, I thought, of all shows, you're asking me to do Oklahoma. <laughs> but I knew because it was Trevor, he it would be different. It would be a different Oklahoma. I, I, I want to ask before you go on, what, what do you mean, why of all shows, Oklahoma? What, well, what was your reaction to Because that? when he asked to meet with me, I thought he was going to talk about a whole new show. Uh-huh. So then when he said Oklahoma, I couldn't believe it. And and that this you know be, famous because, English director wanted yeah, to do it. because it was Trevor Nunn asking. Yes. Had Yes. somebody else, you might have been less incredulous. Yes. What I want to say before you go on, having seen the show over in London when, when you did it there, what was remarkable to me about that show was that I felt like the British cast simply was playing a text as opposed to Americans, which now have laden on the years of high school productions and everything else. And it seemed remarkably fresh and the idea that you were able to to even completely reimagine the dances 
was seemed seemed to really enliven the piece. Well, that's the key, I think, though, to doing any any musical. It's it's uh, we in Oklahoma it would be immersing myself not in what was done before, but immersing myself in the history of the Old West and America at the turn of the century, which was about fighting for territory and fighting for land. So that informed the choreography. The choreography is fight oriented and has challenge steps in it. And in any show I do, it's immersing myself in sort of the decade or geographical area. Even if it's showboat, the people dance differently from the north than they do from the south. Mm. In, in Crazy Few, it's the 30s in New York and the Old West. And it's even basing choreography on the Art Deco architecture of New York City. In um, Contact, it would be uh, immersing yourself in contemporary dance in the clubs in New York. And then in – but for the producers, it's immersing yourself into the world of Mel Brooks. <laughs> okay. Well, well <laughs> since, since we're there – That's a good segue. This, <laughs> is, this has become probably the most benevolent 800-pound gorilla in your life. You, you get involved in a show like this, which is literally – going to involve you for years on end. You are in rehearsal. We're very fortunate you're here even while you're in the midst of rehearsals in London. Yes. That's already the fourth company that you've done of the show? This will be the sixth that, Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of Toronto. Yes. How do you, even before we talk specifically about the show, how do you manage, how do you keep it fresh going back each time to now restage something that certainly was such a phenomenon. And how do you Well, do you I think the, the producers is different from a lot of other shows that I think directors, uh, if they're lucky enough to have a show to do over and over, um, uh, because the producers are so filled with comedy, uh, when, when in, within the casting, when you cast these funny people, they, do, they can make it their own. So it's teaching them the show... As it is, as it is seen because of it, the sets and the costumes and the lighting, but in fact, it does allow people to make it their own and bring their own interpretation into some of these characters, well, especially like Leo Bloom, you know, uh, the well, well, shy accountant. In the London version, will there be any significant changes, or will be? In other words, if we saw it in, in this country, in New York, <clears throat> excuse me, in New York, for example, if we go to London, would we be seeing the same show with different people? Or are you making other substantive changes? Well, you do, you do change it for the different actors. I mean, Richard Dreyfuss, of course, is very different from Nathan. And I not think. noted as a musical performer. <laughs> no, no, but he can sing and dance. He auditioned, and we had him sing, and we had him dance, and uh, he did it all. So I think he's, <laughs> a, he's a closet uh, musical comedy person. <laughs> Hmm. Now, for the movie that you're going to be working on, I guess, early next year. Yes. How different will that be from the stage version? Obviously, a proscenium with an audience sitting in seats <laughs> looking at a proscenium is very different than a movie camera that can take any angle you want. Absolutely. Well, actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because of that reason to be able to shoot these numbers in different angles and different ways. And, and also... Um, to give Nathan Lane and, and Matthew Broderick the opportunity to put this on film for everyone to see. I mean, their performances are, are amazing. And, uh, and, and Mel, Mel Brooks and Tom Meehan, who are writing the screenplay to the movie. So it is, of course, based on the musical, but, but because it is a movie, we've uh, taken some more liberties and, and even found some more jokes. It's interesting. Here you have a movie that was made into a musical on Broadway. Now it's going back to a movie again. If we were to compare the 1968, was it, version yes. of the producers with the 2005 upcoming version, <laughs> a lot of big changes, I would imagine. A lot of big changes. Well, in fact, when Mel first came to me, he came to me with just the screenplay 
of the movie and we had to take that and make it into a musical so now what's happened is we have the musical and now we have to take that that <laughs> script and make that into a musical movie screenplay and any new uh, musical numbers yes yes mel's written a new number for the end oh. very funny why don't we take a moment and, and play a song. listen to a song okay. from the producers, and then we'll talk about it more. But but we asked you before we we began to say, you know, what's what's a number you'd you'd like to set up for us and tell us about? Well, so. I think we should play. I want to be a producer. When you hear Matthew Broderick's beautiful voice, and and really, it's it's uh, everyone's wish to to uh, if you, if you are in a job that you don't love, as Leo Bloom is as an accountant, that sort of American dream to become something else. And he, he's a small accountant at a big accounting firm, and he's been assigned to work with Max Bialystok, who is a <laughs> yes. rather unscrupulous producer. Absolutely, and to fi- to help his, him with his books. He's been bitten by showbiz. <laughs> yes, and uh, he comes to learn how to become a producer from Max Bialystok. So, in fact, the audience becomes Leo Bloom because we all learn how to become a producer by Max Bialystok. Matthew Broderick from The Producers. I want to be a producer. We are talking with the director and choreographer of The Producers, Susan Stroman. Susan, you said um, a lot of things over the years. Mel Brooks uh, has, has referred to you saying if she were a laser beam, she would destroy whatever she was looking at. It's such energy and focus when she's studying it. Is that true? <laughs> Um, well, I do get completely focused. I do immerse myself in, in whatever show I'm working on. And, and uh, you know, you, you go into that room and, and you don't come up for air until opening night. So it is quite focused. I'm sure what, what, <laughs> I've never what, thought of it as a laser beam, but, <laughs> but perhaps it is. What, what, what is the creative process for you? For example, the frogs. You, did you have to research ancient Greek theater? Did you have to research Aristophanes? Uh, yes. You know, with the frogs, it was very special because it's, it's filled with uh, all the elements of uh, – I did research on Greek theater and Greek mythology, Aristophanes, Shaw, Shakespeare – um, even Greek uh, paintings and architecture. How about Showboat? You, you, you said thing. something before, which was kind of news to me, that Northerners and Southerners dance differently. Yes. How so? Well, uh, it's, it was the Southerners that really brought the Charleston to the north, and I think people just think of the Charleston as a northern step. And, uh, but in fact, we, we showed that in some of the montages in Showboat. And, and finding, finding research like that is like finding gold for me, because it really does inform the choreography. How about the producers? Any research other than Mel Brooks involved there? <laughs> well, yes, I know that's quite different, because it it's all about the comedy and making the show seamless of the choreography needed to be funny the the uh, the staging needed to be funny every moment of it is is uh, racing towards a joke and uh, so it had to be more about mel's comedy is different from other comics too if if you know in all his movies he does take a he, he bows to musicals he it, there's a musical moment in every movie and he's written written a song in almost all his movies so this was his real opportunity to um come full circle of of doing a real live broadway musical at the very beginning when we started speaking you spoke about the fact that from very early on, you sensed that you wanted to choreograph. You've made an extraordinarily successful transition from being a choreographer to being a choreographer-director. Did you also always want to direct, or ha- and how did that evolve for you? 
I think that was a natural stepping stone because I was very lucky that that uh, my career had a natural progression. In, in so I was able to learn whatever whatever show I've done, whether it was a financial failure or financial success, I was able to take what I learned from that show and apply it to the next show. And uh, as a theater choreographer, you are uh, different from a choreographer of a modern piece or a, or a, a classical piece. You you are there. You are really choreographing for a specific man. In abstract dance, you're choreographing for every man. But it's a specific man, a specific character. Because of that, you have to know everything the director's doing. You have to know uh, what uh, every every page that's turned. You have to know exactly where everybody's going with it. So you ultimately do know what is happening directorially too. So it's it's something as a theater choreographer. It's, it's a very natural moment when all of a sudden your entire vision takes over the piece. And uh, so it just seemed natural for me to now go on to be a director and a choreographer. And would you ever see yourself going back? Are there are there people you would work with just as a choreographer now, or have you crossed the line and there's no return? <laughs> oh, I think I've crossed the line. <laughs> <laughs> Never to return. Yes, do, does, does the choreographer in you ever argue with the director in you? Do you, do you have to look at it different ways, or does it... Yes, I, I think so. I think because ultimately um, I'm there to tell a story. Uh-huh. And uh, if it means forfeiting a beautiful dance step in order to get to the story faster, I need to do that. So the director wins. The director will always win. Always. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. So um, when you were a little girl with all these dreams of things, <laughs> and now here you are some years later, it must be very exhilarating to see your work up on stage. Well, it's, it's interesting because I feel like after opening night, I've given that work over. I've given it to the actors. The uh, baby has been born. Yes, and I've 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 given it over. So it it, it there is something about um, immediately wanting to go on to a new project or immediately wanting to so it's not develop like, a new idea. So it's not like sitting there saying, maybe I should change this for tomorrow's performance. Well, I have to say, though, I'm not one to freeze a show. I do when I go back and see a show. If there's if an actor, I see an actor leaning towards something, I will change it for them. Absolutely. I mean, that's live theater. It always changes. And, and I think a director and choreographer should be willing to do that. For our audience, we have a lot of uh, people who are quite young, 9, 10, 11 years old, high school. Any advice you can give to people who are wanting to get into your business, into show business, whether it's behind the scenes or in, on stage? Well, I think the the more knowledge you have about the musical theater, the, the better off you are. And I don't I don't only mean about the musical theater, but I mean about all the departments, about lighting, about sets, about costumes, about um, about collaboration. Because it takes a village to put on a musical, and you have to have uh, a great skill in collaborating. And the more you know about all the departments, the stronger your own work is going to be. So you have to kind of be aware, if you want to be a performer, what's going on with the lighting and the costumes and all that. And if you want to be behind the scenes, you have to understand the performer's point of view out there on stage. Absolutely. So you yourself have been a performer. That must help. Uh, yes. Yes, it does help. I mean, I know I know how hard it is. I know uh, and how scary it is to take chances. I've asked other people the same question, and they basically say, get out there and do it. 
I guess, would, would you say the same thing? Just whether it's a theater group, a, uh, a high school, a college, whatever? Oh, sure. The more, the the more that you do, the more you learn. And, uh, you know, the, if, and if you fall, you just need to pick yourself up, dust yourself up, and start all over again. Jeff heard that tick, somewhere. Tick, tick, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we conclude, I want to ask you uh, about a quote I read. Um, you were talking about Balanchine's work and On Your Toes and a particular step that you saw in it. The man uh, leaned Natalia Makarova back, the woman kicks in the air, and he drags her across the stage in a long backbend. And you said, it's quite an achievement for a theater choreographer to create a step that goes into history. Do you think you've managed to do that yet? <laughs> and are you still trying to find that step? Well, I'm not trying to find that step, but I... I um I don't know if I've found that step as much as I think there's probably different icons that have not now going into theater history, like the girl in the yellow dress, or the pickaxes from Crazy for You, or 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 the dancing walkers and uh, the producers. Crazy for You was such a wonderful show, 1992, as I recall. Music of the Gershwins, George and Ira Gershwin. I remember sitting there watching it, saying, "Wow, you, know, you go in expecting." 1935 music, perhaps, you know, and wonderful music, but you don't expect to see what we did up on stage with you as choreographer, people dancing on the roofs, tin roofs of buildings and jumping all over. It was amazing. Well, what was wonderful about that story, of course, it was about a, a renewal of a town, Dead Rock, uh-huh. Nevada, and it was the importance of how a theater can renew a town and renew a community. And then it was all about bringing rhythm to this to this community. So songs like Slap That Bass and I Got mm-hmm. Rhythm were so useful, not only uh, as entertainment value, but also useful as plot points. And you even had somebody playing a saw at one <laughs> yes, point. <laughs> yes, yes. We, I, I, I had a convenient feed store on the stage where it was filled with Many tools and and things that miners in the old west would have used. So there were saws and pickaxes and mining pans. Were you influenced by any of those old uh, Disney cartoons of the uh, you know twenties and thirties where all the barnyard animals would start playing instruments? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do love a good Warner Brothers cartoon, I must say, and I, I have done a few of those movements, especially in the producers. Well, Susan Stroman, our guest today at Downstage Center, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. I want to remind all of our listeners that these interviews and a host of other multimedia information on how theater gets made is available on the Theater Wing's website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap. Thank you.